And in Matthew 13, we have the, the parables of the treasure and the parable. So we have the parable of the treasure, parable of the pearl, really. So we could say parables, but they really are just a parable of the treasure and pearl. It's the same, same message, and we're going to look at that. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, it says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so these, these short parables are really going to drive home to this. What's the main thrust of these parables and, or of this passage? And it's this. Y'all, that the kingdom of God, and these are going to be things that we know, but may what we know not make us cold to it. But it says that the kingdom of God is of greater worth and value than anything we've ever seen or known before. So it's a truth we know. The question is, does the truth even move us anymore? So I think the challenge for us now is do we grasp this value? Do we treasure this, or I'm sorry, do we, do we grasp this value? And do we value this treasure? And do we treasure this great pearl that we have been given? That's the thrust of these passages, though. Keep in mind, again, the context over and over again that he is sharing this secret of the kingdom that was not known to, to people at that time. They knew the law. They knew God the Father. The Messiah is sitting there talking to them. And they are hearing these parables. And he's revealing something new to them. But it's maybe something that we're already familiar with at this time. So therefore, hence my prayer just a moment ago, that if we don't see and understand that the kingdom and that Christ is the great treasure, then everything else in our hearts will be vying for that position. And the truth is, Advice for mine, advice for the elders' hearts, advice for yours. And any time that Christ is not the treasure, any time we do not understand that He is worth the absolute value of all of heaven and that He is the treasure, then we will replace Him with every other thing in our life, even good things and even bad things. So where did that, that concept even come from except from the Messiah Himself? All right, so here we go. We're just going to start walking through, and it starts right here in the parable of the hidden treasure. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And if you can imagine, there's going to be a pause there. And then in a, So he's, he's teaching a crowd, and he just says that. And then he's going to say, again, it's like this, and he starts talking about the pearl. We're going to stop here, and I want you to understand this. I haven't really touched on this yet, but the word like is different than, than maybe we're, we're reading into this one, because I'm going to be tempted to read like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Like kingdom of heaven, treasure hidden in a field. Actually, a better understanding or translation of the word like, it's going to refine maybe. It's not going to really change the parables and how we break them down on, as we preach through them, but it does refine maybe how we read it. The word like is actually better translated and better understood to be like the situation of. So this one word that we say like actually is better translated as a whole phrase. It's like the situation of. For example, 
In this case, the kingdom of heaven is not like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like the situation of a treasure hidden in a field that a man discovers and ultimately gives up everything for. So the situation of encapsulates the entire parable. For example, in Matthew 13, 1-9, the kingdom of heaven is not simply like a sower who sows seeds. Rather, the kingdom of heaven is like the situation of a man who sows seeds, and some of it falls on good soil and some of it on bad soil. It's the entire situation of the parable. Or in Matthew 13, 31-32, the kingdom of heaven is not simply like a mustard seed and leaven, but the kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven is like the situation of a man who plants a minuscule mustard seed that bears unbelievable growth. So in this case, whenever he says that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man discovered and sold everything so that he could have that field and therefore that treasure, it's that entire thing. It's not just a hidden treasure. Right? That's what we would make movies of. This is about something incredibly greater. So I just, it's one of those things, if you go back through each one of those parables, and where you see like, you replace like the situation of, that parable takes on a much fuller meaning. And we're not sitting there just breaking down every little part of the parable. We're looking at the whole teaching of the parable itself. So that's just a little nuance for those of you who want to know. It doesn't really change anything major. It's just something nice to know in case you ever need that bit of trivia. But so that as you approach these, you, you understand that. So if we read the parable in its entirety again, here's, here's what I want to know. What are we really left with? If we read the entire parable, and we're going to one more time, what are we really left with? So here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like the situation of a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Period. Like, that's it. That's, the, that's all it is. So what do we do with that? And it's this, according to this parable, y'all, according to the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a matchless treasure that outweighs all other things we could ever possess. If you and I were to go, across, go we found a field, and then, I don't know why, you're bored, you decide you're going to begin to dig in that field because you happen to have a shovel. So you go and you walk and you say, this seems like a good place to dig. And so you dig and you dig this empty hole and there's nothing there. You're like, I don't know. So you're still bored. So you go dig another hole and you find this treasure. But the problem is if you take that treasure right there, then whose field is it? And therefore who can actually claim that treasure? But you know that that treasure outweighs and is more valuable than absolutely any other thing that you possibly have in your life or that you could ever possess. And so for the sake of that treasure, you cover it back up and then you go sell everything so that nobody else can claim anything of all that you want. And you go sell everything so that you can come back to have this field. And in the midst of that field, you have this treasure, which is now fully and irrevocably yours. That's what the parable's teaching. That it's absolutely worth everything and it outweighs all other things that we could ever possess. That this treasure, the kingdom of heaven, y'all is so beautiful, that it's so glorious and rich and majestic and matchless that it is worth abandoning all other else so that we might cling to it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is actually about. Now, we may say, wait, Jesus isn't hidden. We talk about Jesus all the time. We may say, well, the, the kingdom of heaven, it's accessible because the gospel's going out. But actually, the truth is, remember what Jesus said in chapter 13. He says that to you, to believers, 
It has been, and he was talking to his disciples who were the early believers, and a lot of what he teaches them are applied to us now. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It's been hidden, is what Jesus was teaching. He goes on, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, though it's right there. Hearing they do not hear, though I'm saying it, nor do they understand. Maybe a more mysterious and haunting and scary verse for us or passage would be in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Listen to this one. Paul writes, he says, In their case, the God of this world, which would be Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world actively works to blind the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. There is a hidden treasure that we have found. And if we're not careful, we forget that there is great value in that treasure and that we did not always see it. We need to remember that the gospel was not always glorious to us. Christ was not always beautiful. He was not always majestic. It was not always evident. It was actually hidden from us. And this is a mystery. But what this tells us is that one glorious day, like the man who discovered a treasure in a field, we perceived at that point the matchless worth of who Jesus Christ actually was. And it changed everything. Didn't it? Didn't it change all of who you were in that one moment? And maybe you say, maybe not in that moment, it didn't change all of me. But over the course of a a month, God showed me more and more of himself. But at the end of that process, weren't you absolutely changed, having seen the beauty and the glory of Christ, than who you were before? We were. The paradigm shifted. The treasure made us reevaluate everything in our lives. That which we once held dear was now rubbish to us. That's what this parable says. The parable says that the man is willing to sell absolutely everything, that the kingdom is so unmatched, it changes the paradigm of who we are, and it changes, uh, changes what we consider to actually be rich. Some might say, well, it kind of looks like you can actually also buy your way into salvation here because there's a treasure hidden in a field, and he covers it up, and then he, he goes and he sells all these things so he might go purchase. I don't think that's what this one's teaching at all, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. I think what it's actually teaching is simply this, that the kingdom of heaven is so rare and exquisite and different and unique that it demands in its very nature that we forsake everything else. That's what we see in the man selling his stuff, is he's for, forsaking it all. Everything that was his and everything that he possessed, he is willing to sell and to change for the sake of knowing this treasure and having this treasure more and more. Like, that's what it's about. In other words, y'all, the parable's about the treasure is worth the sacrifice. He's willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of that treasure. And if Christ is our treasure, then he is worth absolutely everything that he gives us and demands of us. Look at the parable of the pearl of great value. says again, the kingdom, that word again, it's going to be helpful here in just a moment. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So just 
I told you the, the, the phrase like is like the situation of I and mean, we kind of expounded something that's been going on throughout the parables, but we're just kind of, let's pause in this moment and consider this. You may have noticed it, but oftentimes Jesus will actually pair two illustrations together for one truth. He's doing that right here, treasure and a pearl to teach us a great truth. We're going to really keep pushing into this. But he will pair similar teachings with two illustrations. And so, for example, um, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he uses salt and light to shape our identities of who we are. Doesn't just say we're salt, doesn't just say we're light. He gives us two different illustrations that really begin to shape our identity. He pairs these. In, in Matthew, and you can see these throughout. I'm just picking some. In Matthew 6, 26 through 30, he talks about birds of the air that neither have to, they, they, and, and lilies, they neither sow nor reap, and yet God provides for them because he cares greatly for them. He talks about birds and he talks about lilies. He pairs them together for this deeper teaching. In Matthew 9, 16 through 17, in talking about the newness of the life that we must have, he talks about. Um, Garments and how you can't put an, a new patch onto old clothing. And he talks about how you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. So he uses garments and wineskins to talk about the newness of life that we must have. He teaches them side by side. He pairs these two illustrations for a purpose. In last week, he used a mustard seed and leaven together. He pairs two things, two illustrations, so that we can have this deeper truth that we keep pressing into. And today, he pairs these two a treasure and a pearl of infinite value to really illustrate the precious value of the kingdom that we have. So it's just something to watch for. That's why he says again. He talks about this treasure that a man is willing to give up everything for, and then he says again. It's like this. So it's like the situation of a man who's searching for fine pearls. Right? So in this parable, like the other one, he's searching for something. Because all of man is searching for something, right? Ecclesiastes says that he has hidden eternity in our hearts, but so much so that we cannot figure out all that God is doing. It must be revealed to us. And his word reveals it to us. And Jesus is revealing to them that he is doing something. And whenever they understand what this something is, it will radically change all that they are. And all that they once held dear will be counted as rubbish. So it's like the situation of a man whose very business is to find pearls. This is what he does. He's going to find pearls. I didn't even know that was an occupation, really, because it's probably like not anymore. But we could relate it to, we can relate to it, I guess is what I should say. But his job is to find pearls. That's what he does is he goes and he searches for pearls. And then one day he discovers one that is vastly different than any other pearl. We do not know how many pearls he's found. We do not know what his expedition looks like. We only know that his occupation is to find pearls. This is what he does. And he goes and he finds this one, and it's so vastly different that it's enough for him to stop searching for all others, for him to abandon and forsake all that he has done before. This one pearl far surpasses all other pearls that he has found and all others he would ever wish to find. And that's what happened whenever our hearts were awakened to the gospel. We were called by God in his mysterious working of drawing us to himself. And we begin searching for what this is in our lives. And we stumble, stumble, and our, we come across the gospel. 
and it changes everything. You know, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is far greater than every earthly possession that you and I have. It's worth giving up absolutely everything that we have. There's a heart check in that. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ, is worth giving up every earthly pattern that we have. It's worth giving up every earthly desire that we have. It's worth giving up every earthly relationship that we have for the sake of knowing Jesus more. Like, that's what it's all about. That's what he teaches. That the kingdom of heaven, the the treasure of it is transcendent and incomparable. The treasure, y'all, is worth every single sacrifice. And until we understand that, I'm going to say this yet again, then we will keep wondering... Why do we have to keep doing this? Is this really worth it? Absolutely it is. What do the collective teachings of this teach us? It's this. The collective, these two things coming together, these two illustrations coming together for this one central truth, teach us that these parables about the kingdom of heaven reveal that it is greater than anything else we could ever grasp anything that we could ever hold or possess or treasure, it is absolutely worth forsaking all else. And I am sitting up here, standing. Here, I'll tell you what. I'm sitting up here. Okay. I'm sitting up here as a husband and a father and someone who works a full-time job, someone who needs sleep, someone who has limited finances. All of these things, just like you. And I ask sometimes the same questions of God, do I really have to do that? Like, I I don't know if I have the time. We look at our we look at our bank account and we wonder, well, do we really have enough that we could actually give over here to this? We have these same conversations. I have to sit there and wonder how I'm supposed to fit in a quiet time every day because I have all these other things that I've got to get done. I'm doing the same things that you're doing. And I'm telling you that your your loss of 15 minutes of sleep or 30, if that's what you're called to do. You're going on missions, if that's what you're called to do. You're giving greatly and sacrificially to another ministry that's proclaiming the gospel, if that's what you're supposed to do. If all these things, that the, the time that I value with my family can sometimes become idolatry, and I'm doing that rather than actually spending more time with God, not that they are doing anything wrong, not that there's anything wrong with loving my family, but sometimes we let family become the thing that we worship rather than God who has given us the family. There are things that vie in our hearts to be the treasures that Christ himself is supposed to be. And whenever we let them come there and we understand that we are no longer valuing this treasure, then we start to find that there's a funk that sets in. And the more we value these treasures, the more value we give them, the less value we give him. And it's easier to not give him value in other things. You and I are one and the same in this. I'm just telling you, there have been mornings that I get up as a pastor. I'm like, I don't... I really want to go to church today, God. Like, I'm really tired. I don't want to go to this other meeting, Lord. Like, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I'm worn out. I'm worried. I'm fearful. Like, I have all these same emotions that you, and I, that you have. I don't always get this. In fact, I was... So, this is where we are. We need to be reminded yet again... We need the same secret of the kingdom that he's revealing to them, that he is worth selling absolutely everything. 
And if we don't think he's worth selling absolutely everything, if we don't think he's worth giving absolutely all of our time, if we don't think we're, he's worth being exhausted for, worth being worried for, worth being uh, fearful for, because what, if he's not worth all those things, then we haven't actually seen the treasure of who he is or we've forgotten. The danger is, lest we forget. So cross life, when we grasp the truth that he is the infinite treasure and he's greater than anything that we could grasp or hold or possess or treasure, when we see the beauty of the kingdom that Christ has brought to us and bought for us, then our paradigms do shift. They shifted whenever he saved us. Those things that we held so dearly that we were drawn to, that were just part of our, we would say our DNA, it's just who I am. We were no longer who, who we were, we became who he made us to be. And everything just began to change within us. And it continues to change within us. And we still struggle trying to circula or circulating around those things which we were that seem to hold on so tight, trying to become more and more of what he wants from us. But something changes within us. We were no longer drawn to something temporary. It's what we hate about our affections whenever we get drawn into them. We get drawn into the temporary, and we know it's the temporary. And we take our eyes off of the eternal one. Man, they're having fun in there. <laughs> but you and I, listen to this as an encouragement. We have been drawn to something so much greater. To someone so much more beautiful that nothing actually compares with it. And when we come to the kingdom of God, it's not even that we have to consider what to give up. We suddenly understand that all that we once held dear is nothing in comparison. I want my kids, I want my kids to one day see God face to face, the good father, and understand that compared to him, I really was not that good. It's what I want. I want chastity to one day see Jesus face to face, the groom of the bride, and understand even more fully that I was not that good of a husband compared to him. I want all of us one day to be dwelling in the heavenly courts and realize that all the laughter and all the possessions and all the sunsets and sunrises and all the deepest and best relationships and all the happiest moments and with the best people in our lives, none of it was that good nor compares to being in his very presence. He far outweighs anything that we can imagine or experience. And I just forget. And because I forget, I compromise. When we, oh, I, there's one song and it's like, I love this song, but it's an old one. And you're gonna know the song immediately. But it gets to this part where every time uh, I'm listening to it or every time I begin to sing, like it resonates within us. Like, I don't think it's just going to be me. I think if you're going to go listen to the song, it gets to this point, and it just resonates. Something clicks right there because I think it captures what we're really wrestling with and what we really long for. And it's from Mercy Me as I Can Only Imagine. Super old song, I know. Like, <laughs> like a decade. But, but in the chorus, he says, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart fill? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. You and I know where we are going. You and I know who we will see face to face. 
And the truth is this, it's yours already. It's yours already. It's mine already. He's already given himself fully. One day, we will not look in a, dim, in a dimly lit mirror. We will not have a veil before our face, as Paul writes. One day, the veil is torn away, the mirror is shine, and we are seeing him fully, face to face, reflecting his glory that he has given to us. But it's yours already. He indwells you. He has given himself fully. The God of heaven lends his ear to you. And whenever we read Revelation 4 and 5 and the full glory of God the Father and God the Son and everyone singing out to him, you, there's that one little phrase in there and it says that the prayers of the saints are incense and they go up before his throne always. Whenever we prayed earlier corporately, it wasn't because of my prayer that it went up to the courts. It's that you in your hearts, all of your prayers that you constantly pray, even as you're driving down the road, whether in the posture, if you're driving with your eyes open or in the privacy of your room, with your eyes closed, whatever it is, your prayers always go up before the God who hears your voice. He is your good Father, and He has given you everything that you need right now, and He will give you everything fully that He wants you to have for all of eternity, and it's yours already, the inheritance. Like, we just forget. We forget that we were walking along, and we discovered this treasure that changed everything about us. And it so changed everything about us that in that moment, we didn't care what else in our lives changed as long as we had this. Or it was like the situation that we were going through life trying to figure out what life means and what we're supposed to do with our lives. And all of a sudden, there's this great pearl of salvation that God shows us. And he says, it's not actually about what all you do. It's about who I am and what I've done, and I am yours if you want me. And we took that, and it changed everything about who we are. And we Christians can be really rough on ourselves because we look at that moment, we had the joy of our salvation and we know how on fire we were. And we look at us right now, we're just like, oh man, I've strayed so far. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, you are a son and a daughter of the living God who knew exactly who you were and who you were going to be and all the struggles that you are in right now. And he tells you, quit looking at your circumstances and remember, you are one who is treasured because of my treasured one who has made you our own. Like, that's who you are. Like, this is not like a pat on the back, buck up, bucko, everything's going to be fine. This is scriptural truth that he is the treasure. And all that you have endured, all the weariness and all the wondering and all the worry and everything that you've given up, all the hardship and all the good and all the joy and all the blessings, everything is because he is the treasure that is worth the very pattern of your life. So the spirit is within you. And it's right into all these things that says, oh, yes, it is so. Like, this is who we are. That the kingdom is true and right. So then it gets to this. What then is the kingdom? Right? If, if in John 1.14, and we've looked at this over the, the last few weeks, so you don't have to turn there in John 1.14. We're going to be turning to plenty of verses here in a moment. Don't worry. In John 1.14, it reminds us that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen the glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Last week we looked at Revelation. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They are crying out, singing a new song, and they say, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And then listen to this part. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. Not you are making them. 
Not you will make them. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Now, what do all kingdoms have? This is, this is really getting to the heart of the matter, I think. What do all kingdoms have? A king. When you and I enter or have entered into this kingdom, we weren't merely coming to the kingdom of heaven. We were coming to a king. We were coming to his authority, to his reign, to his throne. And Ray Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, has done an incredible job teaching my hard heart this really wonderful truth. And it is this. That when I responded to the gospel, I did not receive a thing. I did not, re- I did not receive like a, a thing like forgiveness or grace and mercy. I mean, at that point, whenever I read that, I'm like, oh, okay, here comes the pen. And I'm ready to write. Listen to what he, what he says. When we respond to the gospel, we didn't come to a thing. We didn't receive a thing of forgiveness and grace and mercy. We received a person. Jesus Christ. And in receiving Jesus Christ, there then flows mercy and grace and forgiveness. But whenever he called us to his side, he didn't say, come to me so that I can give you these things. He says, come to me and I will give you myself. He is the treasure of the kingdom. His throne is the one about which the, around which all of creation circles. His name is the one to which they sing. Like the treasure, whatever you say in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is all about the king, and the king is our Jesus and our God forever and ever and ever. And he, y'all, is matchless. The beauties of the kingdom are because of the one who sits upon the throne surrounded by a sea of glass. Like he's the one we've come to, and he's either worth it or he's not. And all of scripture says, oh, he's worth it. And all of scripture also says, if he's not worth it to you, then your heart is wrong. So my heart is wrong oftentimes. I want to go over this lest we forget. How can someone come to the king when they are so wretched and wicked and sinful? Like how in the world can we have access to this kingdom? And here's what everybody needs to know. Like every person, regardless of tribe or tongue or department store you're shopping in or age, everybody needs to know this, that they are not welcome into the kingdom because they are sinless or perfect. But because they are sinful and because they are imperfect, they can come to the Savior, Jesus Christ. That he did not die for the sinless or for the perfect, but he died for the sinful and for the imperfect He did not come for the best in the world. He came for the worst in the world. He did not come for the wisest in the world. He came for the foolish of the world. He came for the sinful. He came for the wicked. And he came for the enemies of God so that he could reconcile us to himself. That was our entrance into the kingdom. Scripture teaches that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The treasure will be yours. It's that simple. And one day, we're just walking along in life, and he shows his goodness and grace to us, and we see the treasure of Christ, and we confess with our mouth, and we believe that God raised him from the dead, and we were saved in an instant just like that. As believers, we believe that God himself has come to this earth to establish a kingdom, 
and that we are welcome into it because we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and is resurrected for our sake in heaven. And in our belief in Jesus Christ, y'all, we have seen a treasure beyond compare, and it has changed who we are and what we value. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom is matchless and beyond compare. And whenever Jesus Christ is that to us, then our lives will be lived so radically that an onlooking world won't understand and will understand that we are different. Why would we give so sacrificially of our times, treasures, and talents? Why would we forgive so easily? Why would we seek peace with those who do not want peace with us? Why would we fight for marriages whenever the world says it's so much easier just to give up? Why would we pour into our kids all these scriptural truths whenever we could go have more fun moments? Why would we give up this? Why would we do that? Why would we sacrifice this? Why would we sell everything that the world says is all dear? In other words, why would we forsake it all for the sake of knowing him more? Because we understand that he is a treasure that is matchless. And sometimes we just forget. I want you to look at several other verses. We're going to start uh, in Matthew 4, 19 through 20. As you're turning there, the, the central truth is this, that when we come to Christ, we receive the greatest treasure. We find the most valuable pearl, and everything else then is rubbish in comparison. Those things aren't bad. Hear me as you're turning there, Matthew 4, 19 through 20. None of those things are bad. Family is not bad. Family time is not bad. Money is not bad. Time and taking care of your health is not bad. But whenever those become the ultimate thing that we find our satisfaction and treasure in, whenever that's what we begin to circulate all of our patterns around, then that becomes idolatry. But when Christ is in the right perspective, and then all of our money's in the right perspective in light of who He is, when my family's in the right perspective in light of who He is, when my time's in the right perspective in light of who He is, when my sacrifices are in the right perspective in light of who He is, then that is perfect and right and good. The problem is, as humans, we just kind of shuffle them around. Matthew 4, 19 through 20. Jesus says to them, and we're going to realize that this is a truth that's taught all throughout. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. What did they leave? Their very occupation, their very identity. They walked away from it. How quickly? Immediately. They found a great pearl. They found a great treasure. And it was worth forsaking everything. Go to Matthew 4, um, 21 through 22. Just kind of picks up right there. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Right? This is a family business. Zebedee, their father. What a cool name, Zebedee. They were mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. He walks by, he says, follow me. And they immediately leave their father, they immediately leave their occupation for the sake of knowing him and following him more. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 21 through 22. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
Seems so harsh. I mean, that's a that's pretty unloving and unreasonable. My father has died. Let me at least go bury my dad, and then I will follow you. I will I will follow hard after you. I'll go wherever you tell me to go, but I need to go do this first. And Jesus' point is not to be unloving or harsh. His is to show the greater value of follow me now. And that's what we're called to do. He, in, an es- in essence, is showing there can be nothing else before me. There cannot be family. There cannot be treasure. There cannot be anything before me. There has to be me. And once you follow me, then these things will follow. Look at Matthew 19, 21 through 22. Jesus said to him, to this young man who came to him, wanted to know what he has to do to obtain the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, and Jesus says to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. It says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So if in, in chapter, um, chapter 10... He said, I'm worth forsaking your family for. He says to that young man, I'm worth forsaking all your money for. Am I worth it or not? It's a test of the heart. Look at Luke chapter 10. I'm hoping these just kind of refine a lot of what I've been trying to, to say throughout as some of the illustrations. But in Luke chapter 10... It's another heart check for us. I mean, is Ricky really willing to sell all that he has? Give up absolutely everything for the sake of following Christ. My home, my cars, bank account, retirement, like whatever. Like, am I willing to actually, really, truly give up everything for the sake of knowing him more? That's a heart check. In theory, yeah, absolutely, because we don't think he'd really call us to it, except that he's called many faithful Christians all throughout the ages to do it. Would I really be willing, going back to Matthew, just kind of bringing this, would I really be willing to not go to the funeral of my parents if Christ has called me to go elsewhere in that moment, to follow him? Would I really be willing to give it all up, all of this for him? It's a heart check. So is this one. If anyone comes to me, he says in Luke chapter 10, verse 26 through 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, it says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 26 Is the loss of family really, truly worth it for the sake of knowing and honoring Christ? And he's either worth it or he's not. The scales don't get to balance here. I think we kind of like to think that if he's a good God, he wants me to enjoy all these good things. That's what it's all about. No, the good God says, I am of infinite value. I far outweigh everything. And then his grace is that we get to enjoy those things. But is it worth it? Our families, are they worth it for the sake of knowing him more? Is your death 
worth it. That's what verse 27 says. I always said in churches that taught it this way, whoever does not take, or I'm sorry, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I grew up thinking, well, a cross is the uncomfortable thing. I'm going to have to deal with this cross today. Lord, help me to bear my cross today. Things are going to be rough and tough. No, cross was death. You bore the cross because you were going to die. And it was going to be an excruciating death. In other words, whoever is not willing to die for me, for Christ, cannot be my disciple. So not only... Are your treasures worth forsaking? Not only are your parents worth forsaking, not only is your family worth forsaking, but is your very life worth forsaking? Your own dreams, your own desires, your own pursuits, your own goals, your own everything that makes you who you are, is all of that worth no longer mattering for the sake of me, even your very life? Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. I needed this verse myself. You have to understand, I had to go through a whole lot myself in the, the pursuit of studying this for this sermon too. And Paul, who has exhausted himself, like um, he was a murderer, saved by the grace of God, and then he goes and he's planting all these churches. And in some of the um, chapters that we could read in the Bible, he tells us everything that he endured. But here, I just listen to the heart of one who treasures Christ. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Do you know what he's saying there? He says, even if all that I have and all that I am is absolutely laid out for your own sake and it's consumed and taken and never again in mine for the offering of your faith, for the sake of your faith, then I will rejoice. Why? Because he had the treasure of Christ in perspective. He would sacrifice, he would give up anything and everything for others' faith so that they could have so that they could have their faith deeply rooted in Christ. Something that's not in my notes. It's actually and I, anybody who wants to see it, so you you can um, you can go to one of my journal entries as I was reading through Romans and Paul. And it's not here, so you just have to forgive my loose translation. But in Romans, Paul writes. He says, "I would that I, Paul, were cut off." so that they could know him more. If it means that I have to abandon my faith and I have to be cut off from God so that Israel may know who God is fully, then I would do that. And for years and like decades, I would write, do I care about the loss that much? No. Like that's what I'd write over and over again. You can go look at my notes. Do I care about the loss this much? Like I just write it over, because that's what I hear. He has such a heart for the lost that he is willing to give up his own faith so that they can have it. And then before I even began studying for this sermon, God really kind of challenged my heart and it, you can see it in my notes. I, I start with, he has such a passion for the loss that he is willing to be cut off from God so that they may have access to God. Like, do I care about the, the loss that much to my shame? No, I to my shame do not care about the loss that much. And then as I'm writing, I got to this point. I think it's more that in my heart, 
I do not actually see the infinite value of Christ enough. That I, yes, I want this possession for myself, but if I truly saw the beauty and the worth and the majesty and the glory of God and all the fullness of all that he gives, like if I really, my heart really understood that, then I would want them to have this. And so really, that passage challenged me even to, I don't treasure Christ enough. I don't esteem him enough that I think others really need him or want him or that he's all satisfying. He's just all satisfying to me. No, he's all satisfying to all. So I'm being worked through also in many different ways. Look at Philippians 3, verses 13 through 14. We're almost done, I promise. Paul's writing, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Why does he forget all else? Because it's simply rubbish. He has one goal, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what those parables are about. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and gave up everything so that he could have that treasure. It's like a pearl that a man was seeking, and he found the pearl that surpasses all other worth, and he gives up everything, his very life and occupation, so that he can have this one pearl. Like everything is absolutely worth it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-10. through 10. I know this one's just slightly long. Just bear with me, okay? Now this passage, the sermon. I know, I get it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-10 through 10 says this. Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 7, in case you have ever missed it. But we have this treasure, right? These parables. There's the hidden treasure. There's a great pearl. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That means jars of clay. They are fragile. They break. They chip. They are going to be broken. We have this treasure in jars of clay for this reason, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that, why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So that when we are chipped and broken and crumbled, and these jars of clay fall apart, people understand that there is a treasure that radiates through those fissures and cracks and brokenness. We've been given this treasure so that we can show that there is a treasure deeper within us than these mere jars of clay that people can see. Why do bad things happen to us? It may be that we are a broken world. It may be so that the glory of Christ can shine out from us so that people understand that there's a treasure that we cling to greater than our health or our wealth or our possessions or our family, that there is something more dear and central to who we are. And either it's the treasure that we give everything for or he's not. I want to show you one last thing of this treasure. And then concluding remarks, go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. This is so cool. This is so awesome. Like this is the treasure that is in your jar of clay right now. This is the one that we've given everything for and that we will give everything for. 
Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So John's writing, and he says, Then I turned, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Y'all, this is Jesus. You're about to hear, but this is Jesus. This is how Jesus is explained and described in Revelation at the very, very beginning. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength and when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I am the first and the last and the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades this is our Jesus like he is the Jesus who was beaten and bloodied and hung on a cross. And he is the radiant one throughout all of eternity. This is who he is. So now what do we do with all this? Listen to this. All of this is a quote. All of the apostles were insulted by, their en by the enemies of their master. They were called to seal their doctrines with their blood and nobly did they bear the trial. Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at a distant city of Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterward banished to Patmos. Patmos sorry. Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross when he preached to a, from whence he preached to the process, his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance at a place that I don't even know how to say it, in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the Emperor Nero. Such was the fate of the apostles according to the traditional statements. Why, if they loved Christ, did this happen to them? And it's this, they were willing to die for him of whom they saw greatest value. They were willing to forsake everything, including their death. Their paradigm shifted, and they allowed it to remain shifted for his sake. They were willing to forsake everything because they saw the incomparable, unrivaled treasure of the kingdom of God. You know, they were willing to give up not only their sin, but their very skin for the sake of making sure that he was known to be their treasure. And that has fueled growth throughout the ages for the church. People who are willing to live so radically for a treasure greater than this world. All right, believers. So then, a few reminders. The treasure is already yours. We just forget. We forget the value of what we possess is the truth of it. I myself included. I myself, even an hour and a half ago, forget the value of what we possess. We take our eyes from the treasure that we found hidden in that field that was not known to us. We take our eyes from the great pearl, the all-surpassing pearl that we were given a glimpse of. We forget. And therefore, we hold on to things that have a lesser value. I am guilty 
of having things and holding on to things that I think have a greater value than Jesus Christ, and I am wrong. What do we hold on to? We hold on to our sin. We hold on to our bitterness. We hold on to unforgiveness. Even good things we hold on to, like family and money and time, we hold on to things that are ours rather than giving up everything for the sake of this unsurpassable treasure of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the moment whenever you were saved? The moment that you believed, you saw something, someone so infinitely beautiful, unbelievably beautiful, that it changed your very life in that moment. You and I were willing to forsake everything in that moment for that, for Him. That's why I love this Psalm 51, verse 15. It says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. May the passages today, y'all, remind us of that. I want that to be my desire. Restore unto me, Lord, the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with your willing spirit. My final reminder to you, and then I'll pray and we will sing. Is that all the beauty of the infinite treasure has been made available to us. We must give up everything for the sake of knowing Him more. To know Him and to make Him known should be the tenor of a heart that treasures Him above all else. Is your family bad? No. Is sleep bad? No. Is your time bad? No. Are your finances bad? No. They're good things given by God, but whenever good things become God things, then God is no longer the God of our lives and something else is. Lest we forget that He is the insurpassable treasure who then laid down his life for us so that we could have him forever. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. May that be the tenor of my very heart this morning. Let's pray. Lord, your word causes us to check our hearts. And Lord, forgive me for whenever I have forsaken the treasure that you are. Forgive me for when I have forgotten that you are matchless. Forgive me for whenever I become selfish and hold on to those bad things and those good things, Lord, that ultimately distract me from you and who you are and who you've called me to be. Lord, all of that I have done this morning has just simply been words. Lord, I pray that my words fade and are forgotten, but that your word truly stands. All the scripture truly stands. And the Lord calls us to account. But Lord, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. And Lord, uphold us and cling to us. We need you. And we praise on your son's holy name. Amen.